Good morning, good morning, good morning. Much love. How's everybody feeling? Hello? That's good. Wonderful. Uh, my name is Wally, if I have not met you. Uh, Wally Harrison. I am the teaching pastor. Such a privilege to be the teaching pastor for Walker Harbor. I am so thrilled to see all you fantastic people. Uh, welcome. Thrilled you're here. Um, we're going we're gonna to jump in. I, I do kind of reiterate a couple things um, as, it, as it pertains to this. One, um, we really, really want to thank the Three Mile Project for opening things up and letting us play, so thank you. Um, the Three Mile Project has faces. Stan and Luann, thank you always for your hospitality and willingness to let us um, be wild. Now, the rule is no one's allowed to get hurt today. Uh, if so, you broke the rules. So if you're one of those people that follows rules, then there you go. Don't get hurt. Um, and I'm talking to myself, by the way, <laughs> because I will at some point pick up a dodgeball. I will try and run the wall again um, in the ninja course, make you all nervous. Uh, so there's that. Uh, and then also, as soon as the gathering, as soon as we're, we're done here, at about, uh, when I wrap up the teaching about 2.30, um, we'll pack up the chairs real quick. We'll just spend a few minutes tearing this down, which gives our uh, hospitality people a chance to get the soups in, in such set for us to eat. So we'll, about 10 minutes, 15, and then we can have lots of food, and you'll be able to play and have all that fun, but we'll kind of all tear down together. It will be lovely. And with that, so you ever have one of those mornings where you wake up, and for me, to, when my eyes are peeled open, there's this element of, I didn't do that. Uh, I, I didn't wake myself up. Uh, I, I was awakened. And so I have this just kind of buoyant um, gratitude. I, I would say almost like, I'm, my heart is gargling gratitude. There is this, yeah, we have this day. And I had that a bit more this morning where I just woke up and was like, oh, I love this. I love that I have another day. Uh, and then within that, so just kind of um, gargling and gratitude, I also think of uh, our hospitality people who every single week just create space for to have treats, snacks, drinks, and all of that. Super grateful for them, but especially, and, and there, it's a team of people, but very much want to thank uh, Sue Coutier because she's been doing this. So thank you, Sue, for organizing and, and doing such things because she's been doing this from the beginning, like the beginning of this church. So uh, in, in many ways, and she does it, but the thing is she has this just phenomenal heart for people experiencing hospitality, and I'm so grateful. Thank you, Sue. Uh, and Dave, thank you, because you're always... Dave built a thing to be able to, like, measure how the distance and chairs and the stuff like that. So he's an engineer, and he's like, if we're going to do this, we're doing this right. And then you all come in and sit and start pushing chairs around, <laughs> and Dave's over there going... <laughs> and he writes down your names. And <laughs> that's the naughty list. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Are we going to do something here this morning? Are we just going to? Sure. Um, it's great. No, I'm super grateful. Um, but we will, and, and we do. The winner of the soup contest will give you a gift certificate to Panera so you can go eat your own soup and not have to make it. Like, just enjoy that. Isn't that great? Wonderful. So um, that's what you're battling for. So we gave you enough heads-up time. Count your ones in your uh, wallet and see how many people you can bribe to vote for your soup or chili. All right, with that, uh, we should probably get rolling. Um, we are in the midst of uh, a series in the midst of, we're at the very beginning of. For the next year, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Matthew. The book of Matthew in, in the New Testament kicks off the New Testament. So we're spending a year verse by verse, and we'll, we, we think we'll end at Christmas uh, 2022, we think. If, if I have my way, it'll be Easter 2023. Uh, that's what I'm pushing for. So, uh, but it's really good. Uh, but what we've landed on today, so you're aware, today is the final Sunday of Advent. So Advent's actually the season leading up to Christmas. Christmas is a really short season, actually. We call this Christmas season, but it's Advent, which is all about anticipating, actively anticipating the arrival of Jesus the Christ. And so this season of Advent leading up to Christmas, and then right after Christmas is the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany takes us to January 6th. So it's these beautiful um, these seasons with Christmas sandwiched in there, and it's a gift. And so um, it's great. And so we began, uh, we actually started week two of Advent going through Matthew, and it just, uh, it takes us in such a beautiful way up to tying it together, Christmas, the way we did that. It works out pretty well. But this morning, we're only in our third week in Matthew, and we're beginning chapter two already. Breakneck speed! We're just humming through this book of Matthew. So, I uh, love that we are walking through a, a larger part of the text verse by verse because it provides us the opportunity to dig deep into the context and to see some of the larger themes of the scriptures. Really important. And interesting along with this and with a nice push. Before this, we did seven weeks in the book of Revelation. And I think within that, what it did is it stirred up with people. I've had lots of conversations about how people have said they're really grateful for digging into the wider context of Scripture. And I think that's really important because it helps us talk honestly about the gorgeous, transformative ways and words found in the Scripture, but it also helps us be honest about the messy, deeply disturbing, and incredibly confusing aspects of the Bible. Because if you read the Bible at all, I would think at some point you'd be like, what? What is that? What, what is this? That's super confusing. Or if I'm understanding this right, then that seems really kind of goofy, crazy, wild, violent, barbaric. Really? Well, I, I would hope that stirs up in you because if you're just reading and you're like, fine, great, one, whatever, then I'm going to go ahead and say you're probably not really reading it. Uh, and I'm okay saying that. So, uh, yet this is another reason why I'm so wildly grateful for this community because we have the willingness, hunger, you all have this willingness and hunger to immerse 
ourselves in the all of life wrestling that comes to by digging into the scripture. Scripture is an electric adventure, one inviting endless questions and mystery. So as we've already highlighted in the first two weeks of this series, this story, this gospel story, this good news of the life of Jesus has an unlikely history laced, peppered with all these unlikely people. And then this morning, what we're going to look at is an unlikely, taking us on an unlikely way to get to Jesus. It's very actually unlikely if you think about it. Uh, for a minute, you're like, who, what, these people really what, what kind of history is this? And what kind of, this is the way in which we're going to get to Jesus? It ought to be a little odd. It should. But then that raises for me questions, which will be surprising to you, right? That I have lots of questions. But one of them is, why is all the unlikeliness surprising to people of faith, and then specifically Christians? Why would unlikely people weigh uh, story in some ways, why would it be confusing or at least um, unexpected to Christians, to people of faith? Because the rest of the world, I don't think the unexpected is all that uncommon. When we think of like the most unlikely person or the most unlikely story that leads us to winning the hero, um, these kind of things, think of the movies and books, Frodo Baggins, Lord of the Rings. You don't go, yeah, him. He'll be the one. You, no, Rocky Balboa. This come, simpleton from the streets of Philadelphia, and he becomes this great... But No, what? George McFly. Oscar Schindler. Really? Look at his story. And then what he did? Shrek. I mean, come on, those ears. Uh, let's see here. Um... Pony Boy and Johnny, Pony Boy Curtis and Johnny from The Outsiders, really? Heroes? So you have a litany of unlikely people often taking an unlikely path to like experience and open up the more of life. This is all around us and we love these stories and we embrace them and yet far too often the church misses this kind of mystery and this unlikeliness which is but one reason, one reason why last week, Sarah McCannley in her teaching, so beautiful, thank you, Sarah, why it was so important that she led us through this really important practice or discipline uh, known as the Kairos circle or this learning circle, which is to ask the question, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? And we're listening to God and how, what is that next right step or new way forward. And there's just this little practice we have to be listening to what God is up to. And it was such an important thing because we're surrounded by such mystery and unlikeliness and we'll miss it if we think this is just this way and we're not open to God, what are you up to? And this whole new way forward, that's what we're going to look into this morning in today's text. So, a kind of a prayer would be, uh, may we, this group of people, may we be expectant for the divine to do the unexpected in leading us to awe and wonder and transformation, even this morning. So I'd love to say a word of prayer, and that was just the intro. <laughs> so then we have to dig into the text. So gracious God, we bless you for the gift 
of another day. You awakened us. You stirred our souls. You peeled our eyes open. And we have the gift of this day. So as we dig in, we open the scriptures, we listen with not just our ears, but our hearts and our minds to what you have for us. Gracious God, may the meditation, the posture of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you and you alone, our Lord, our rock and our Savior. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. All right, are you ready? Lots of fun. I love it. Yep. Matthew chapter 2. Woohoo! Verses 1 and 2. Here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so we say Bethlehem, but Bethlehem, which is all kinds of good time there in, in the Hebrew, but Bethlehem, what it means is Beit, house, Lechem, bread. So it's the house of bread, the city. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of who? Oh, super important. King Herod, wise men, we often call magi, it's magos, that's how it's pronounced. See, I'm going to wreck your Christmas, I'm telling you right now, when you go to read magi, now you got to go, oh, it's magos. Magos, from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And pause. Two verses in, there's so much here that we don't even have time. We could just do an entire year on this, these two verses. But the most likely way for Jesus to be discovered and to be determined worthy of being king would be to be found and recognized by the religious elite. In this, you'd think temple priests and teachers of Torah, teachers of the law. That's who should be seeing, finding him, and announcing to everyone. Then that should be done in the most religious setting. In this context, that would be in Jerusalem. That's where this should all take place. But they just said he's going to be born in Bethlehem, this little podunk village. What? Hold on here. So, what's so fascinating then is, so you don't have this. In this context, you have this. Instead, God is wooing some magos, wise men, sages, magicians, is how they'd be known, coming from the east via a star. Anyone read this? So we're clear, star, them reading the stars and following this, that falls under the categories of astronomy and astrology, so the sciences. Science leads to Jesus, everyone. Yeah, well, see, just two verses, and you're like, come on. Now, not surprisingly, scholars can't seem to pin down in an exact understanding of who these magos are. Their title, a magos, shows up in the Hebrew scriptures in the book of Daniel as people who are Daniel's enemies participating in, ready, astrology, which is a form of divination that it talks about in the scriptures, forbidden in scripture. Just fun. Now, magos are most commonly understood as pagan dream interpreters as well, where it was also common for them to travel in large caravans. How many people, how, how many magos are there in our, our birth story? Yeah, do you find that in the text? Nope. But it makes a nice song. We three kings of Orient. Tar, tar, I don't know, whatever it is, um, something. But it's not three, 
caravan. Lots. That doesn't fit in the song well. Anyways, so they come in these caravans with dignitaries to congratulate a new ruler being born and, and honor them. That's what often with these peoples are up to. Now, modern scholarship has the Magos coming from, ready, Babylon, while others have them coming from Persia. Either way, kind of near each other. Get a map. It's wonderful. Both of which, though, Babylon, Persia, have strong ties with what took place in the book of Daniel. Jerusalem was destroyed, and the people are hauled off into exile. Where? In Babylon. Then Babylon is conquered by Persia, Cyrus the Great, the Persian king. Now, Matthew here is telling us that these magos have likely come from one of these two empires tied to one of the most miserable parts of Israel's history. These are the people who are going to find the, the Messiah, the, the one who is coming, and they're going to be announced by these magos. So we have to sit with this tension that Matthew just told us because the original listeners would be going, what? And they'd be pulling their hair out or waxing their head, whatever. But, like, these people came from Babylon or Persia, and they're reading the stars to find our Savior. So that makes me immediately go, did someone ring the read the wrong blueprints, right? Did Matthew, Matthew here writing, did he not listen to the proper divine marketing strategy? Um, because throughout his gospel, Matthew does, is he has highlights a number of very unexpected people, outsiders, as they're often labeled, who choose to follow Jesus. And, and if we're honest then, I don't think Matthew, Matthew is not well read in the doctrinal, doctrinal statements of many of our modern denominations. Because if he were, he would know then that he would be called a heretic which is interesting because that was a long time ago, yet our modern denominations, we put together our doctrines, a lot of them, and we would go, well, you can't say those things. You're a heretic. But he's the first one to say them. Uh-oh. Some reworking might be in place. We'll figure that out later. All right, we got to keep reading. Verse 3. Uh, when King Herod heard this news from the Magos, he was what? Oh, you know, there's so much there. He was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied right away. Boom. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, we're going to first, if you're taking notes, earmark the whole priests and teachers of the law. We're like on it and just nailing what exactly is going to take place immediately. They have the answer quickly and easily, and they spout off the right answer. So we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But first, the scripture that is being quoted is from the Hebrew prophet Micah, as well as being a remez, which is an allusion or hint to 2 Samuel chapter 5, in which you have the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. They go to King David, and they, they say to him, hey, we know that even when Saul was the first king, was king before, we recognize that even when Saul was king, you, David, 
were the one that actually shepherded us as a people. So when they're making an allusion and they, they quote this text that says something that would be a hint to say, hey, we know when Saul was king, David was the one who actually shepherded us. How's that going to land for good old Herod, who's the king of the Jews? Now, the meaning behind the word disturbed is really, really significant. So the word in the Greek is terazzo. Go ahead and say terazzo. Terazzo. Okay, it means, and this is great, to agitate, to cause one inward commotion, take away calmness of mind, to stir up, to strike one's spirit with fear and, fear and dread. Anyone been terazzo in the last mm, two years? Are you, right? So this kind of thing within, terazzo. Now, what's interesting is in the church, when we read the king is going to be born in Bethlehem, we kind of sing song. We tend to find it cozy and cute and wonderful. Yay, it's good news. But when Herod learns this, this message does something very different in him, which I would actually say reveals how something in him views this news in such a way. Are you with me? And, and then we get terrazzo. When someone like Herod is terrazzo, then those at his mercy here, Jerusalem, in this case, would experience terrazzo as well. Uh-oh, our leader, this guy, the guy in charge anyway, he's upset? Oh, no. To help us get a better picture of why this news is experienced as it is for Herod, it's always good at this time, Christmas time, to do a brief overview of the context surrounding the birth of Jesus. So, with that, deep breath. Are you ready? So much fun. Okay, note takers, got to be on it. Here we go. After Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BCE, before Common Era, Rome fell into a massive 13-year civil war. Throughout the war, the Roman Empire was led by a triumvirate, which is meaning the kingdom was divided into thirds. One-third is led by Roman general Mark Antony. Remember him from ninth grade history? Then one led by Roman statesman uh, Marcus Lepidus, and then one by Julius Caesar's adopted nephew, and so it's his heir, Octavian. Octavian and Antony would incrementally kind of drain Marcus Lepidus of his authority and power over time, but things grew tense between Antony and uh, Octavian. And part of that is because Antony, Mark Antony, began a love affair with the queen of one of the foreign enemies, Egypt, the queen being Elizabeth Taylor, also known as Cleopatra, right? So he has this, it starts an affair with her. Well, she's the enemy, queen of the enemy. What's the problem here? But here's the thing, to try and smooth things out, Mark Antony marries uh, Octavius, Octavian's sister, Octavia. Wait, come on, parents. What are you trying to confuse the people? Octavian and Octavia. But Mark Antony marries his sister because we all know when there is a tense relationship, what we should put in is in-laws. We should add that to the mix. Because it's like taking an atomic bomb and dipping it in glycerine. There you go. Good times. Well done, Mark Antony. 
But Mark Antony then continues after marrying Octavia his love affair with Elizabeth Taylor because apparently he's a glutton for punishment. Isn't history so much fun? Now, Antony eventually marries Cleopatra, and then Antony and Octavian go to war with one another in 31 BCE. This was known as the Battle of Actium. Octavian defeats Mark Antony, which then leads to Mark Antony and Cleopatra doing this kind of dramatic uh, Romeo and Juliet-style double suicide. During all of this, our boy Herod, he's in the mix, Herod has been loyal with Mark Antony, loyal to Mark Antony, but then after being defeated, he kind of goes groveling at the feet of uh, Herod, Herod goes to Octavian, grovels at his feet and says, I'll put all my allegiance to you. I'll be loyal to you. And Octavian receives him. And in 27 BCE, Octavian is anointed then Caesar Augustus which means Caesar, the divine one. No ego for this fella. So Caesar the divine becomes the first and arguably the most successful Roman emperor. Fun fact, similar to his uncle, Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar had a month of the year uh, renamed to honor him. Anyone know what that would be? Julius Caesar has a month renamed after him? July. Uh, Octavian, Caesar Augustus now, he says, you know what? This month has been the best. I won this great battle. These people went off themselves, so I am in charge. So I'm going to have a, na- a month renamed after me, which is August. So well done. We follow these things. That was in 8 BCE that he renames the month August because it was a really successful, wonderful time for him. So our favorite time of the year, July and August. Uh, Oh, oops. Yeah, fun, right? Also at this time, Herod is installed as Rome's puppet leader for Israel, and he's dubbed the king of the Jews. Tracking with all the drama? Because this all takes place before Jesus is born. Now, Herod was ethnically an Idumean, an Edomite. This doesn't fit the lineage of the one who is to come, which is why I mentioned two weeks ago that Herod destroyed. He had a bunch of registries. When they keep these registries of family lineage and all that, he has them destroyed because he knows some of these are going to lessen his resume when we see that he doesn't come from the line and other people come from the line of the one who is to come. And so he immediately destroys them because he doesn't want anyone thinking that someone else has a chance of being more of a king than he does. Herod was sly and acting in ways to try and win over the Jewish people, beginning with rebuilding their temple, the temple in Jerusalem. Herod has it rebuilt to be the largest and most magnificent temple in the ancient world. He doubled its size. He also built those several temples to honor the so-called divine Caesar Augustus. He's playing both sides. As he came into power, get this, Herod made sure to execute all members of the old Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council, who opposed him. Those people that he said, they don't agree with me, killed him. And then he put new people on the council who agreed with everything he said. Get rid of those who oppose you and put in puppet supporters. Crazy the political issues they had back then. Right? 
Herod would not tolerate any sort of dissent. As told by first century historian Josephus, Herod took one of the symbols of the Roman Empire, a golden eagle picture, an excavation, they find a picture. This is what they would have, this golden eagle. Herod took this, and it was often found carried in battle by a Roman legion, a military group. So there's a picture of this, a little drawing of what that looked like. This head person would have it on a stick, and he would come, and this is what he would be dressed in. He would lead a legion of soldiers into battle so that anyone, would, as soon as they saw that golden eagle, they knew, here comes Rome, here comes our loss, here comes our destruction. They are powerful, here comes that eagle. So, Herod takes this and he does a bigger size golden eagle and he puts it at the entrance of the temple, the Jewish temple. He hasn't erected a golden eagle at the, that because Herod and Rome had no problem wedding national and military pride with religious fervor. Josephus records that 40 young disciples of two respected Torah, Hebrew Torah, teachers, Judas and Matthias, they, 40 of these students swiped the eagle off the front, of the, the front of the temple. They took it and they chopped it into pieces because they understood an image like that is called a graven image and you would not have it anywhere near the house of the Lord. Deeply offended that this happened, Herod gathered the Jewish leaders in a theater. He lectured them about how much he has done for them, including rebuilding your, the, uh, your temple in the most opulent way. Herod then took those responsible for the sedition, all 40 of them, and he burned them alive in the theater. He then appointed a new high priest, one who would be subordinate to Herod and to Rome. So, just so, as a summary, he intimidates through force and violence, then he fires the pastor who doesn't uphold the preferred politics, and then he hires one who simply puppet one's preferences. Again, it's a very sad issue they had back then. More about this disturbed Herod. His brother-in-law, a very young high priest who had become more popular than he is, he had a drowning accident. But then in a pool that archaeology has since verified to be very, very shallow. It's a kiddie pool. Huh. How then did he drown? Um, when Herod's favorite wife, how about that statement? Herod's favorite wife, Miriam, Mary, it all ties together within our birth narrative. Then you get into some things. Herod's favorite wife was named Mary. She was a Maccabean princess. She was falsely accused of adultery, so he had her strangled to death. But then he later named a tower in his palace after her. Oh, that's sweet. Uh, he executed two of his sons, who were once again falsely accused of plotting against him, Five days before Herod died, he executed another son, the one who falsely framed the other two brothers. He then learned, oh, you framed them, I'll kill you. Well, now he's got three sons that he's had killed. 
Herod so craved to be honored and revered that on his deathbed he arrested a number of beloved nobles and set their execution for the day he died, thinking that if many people were executed on the day he died, he could ensure that there would be mourning rather than celebration at the time of his death. But when he died, those nobles were released and people celebrated. Backfired, Herod. So, enough to give us insight, a little bit, of why Jerusalem was disturbed. Because this guy is upset. How do you think when you're like, you start hearing that he's starting to throw a temper tantrum? Oh, no. We know what that means for us. So when this megalomaniac Herod becomes tarassoed, well, we all get a bit tarassoed. Yet these outsiders, known as Magos, come announcing that they have found the true king, and they found that through the stars, which again falls under the sciences. So now what we have in our story, framed, God connecting with and working through outsiders using science. That's our story. But what if that doesn't align with my religious education and my denomination? Well, whoops. It's, I'm just having so much fun this morning. It's such a good time. I love it. It's just, we're just history people. It seems this ancient kind of odd story raises quite a few questions and tensions for us here today. Could it be that God would choose an unlikely history, an unlikely people, and now an unlikely way to announce that he has come in the flesh to rescue, redeem, and restore all things? Friends, welcome to the Bible, the story about the God who's best known as surprise. Surprise! Surprise is one of my favorite names for God because he's constantly surprising us, which asks of us then, are you willing to hold loosely your answers to embrace the God of surprise? Will you make space for truth coming from unlikely people in unlikely ways? Because right answers alone does not bring one to Jesus. It's the freedom to pursue the mystery of Christ, including the embrace of questions, which leads us to a more firm foundation. If Jesus is truth, good questions can help you arrive at Jesus. Good questions. Pursue questions, friends, not just answers. Now, we're going to finish up this section of our scripture, and then this will position us really well for Christmas Eve when we look at how the birth story of Jesus further subverts the most likely way in which people then and now might expect the Savior to come. Good times. Christmas Eve, can't wait. By the way, we get together three times within a week. Today, good times. Friday, Christmas Eve, woohoo, party. Christmas Eve, we'll keep it tight, and then we'll gather again on Sunday. You all are thinking, man, does Wally have it in him? Yes, I do. Cannot wait. Right? So, Matthew 2, verse 7. Then Herod called the Magos secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Right. 
Does anyone kind of read that and go, come on? Sure. After they heard the king, had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Pause here to a Hebrew audience, Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, describing a star rising and stopping over the place of birth, leading them, is also a way for Matthew to paint a brilliant picture of a central story to their history known as the Exodus, found in the book of just Bible scholars, you all. <laughs> Exodus chapter 13, 21 to 22. By day, the Lord went ahead of them, leading them out of Egypt and slavery, leading them toward the promised land. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire. Same language to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Now, I can picture the original audience listening to Matthew write this, tell this, making eyes at one another, thinking the star, this thing's happening. It's God's doing it again. God's doing it again is what's going through here. And the Hebrew word for pillar of fire is the same word used in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, when God asked Abraham, another one, to perform a ritual that would seal their covenant relationship. Hey, we're going to do a ritual where you would cut animals in half and put them on each side, and then each person in the agreement, in the covenant, would walk through in between the halved animals, which, by the way, is where we get the um, wording to cut a deal. comes from this ancient practice, to cut a deal. You cut animals in half, you walk in between, but in this story in Genesis, there is a torch of fire that symbolizes God. Torch of fire is the same language as star, and, and the pillar of fire above. Same language. And what happens is the torch goes in between, and then like this boiling pot goes in between, which is to say the only one walking in between and making the covenant is God. Abraham doesn't walk to it because it's a way of God saying, I will be faithful no matter what, even if you aren't, which they won't be later on. God says, I will be forever faithful. I will hold up this covenant no matter what. Really quite a stunning story for another day. This is crucial understanding many of the scenes that Matthew will describe all throughout his biography of Jesus, offering a picture of Jesus as the new Moses, one, and also as the one who will be faithful no matter what. But Matthew's depiction of Jesus also shows how he will be the one extending and expanding the reach and rescue to all people, specifically highlighting the outsider being invited in. Are you with me? Now, verse 10 and 11, real quick. When they saw the star, they were what? Man, these people are lost in awe and wonder, these magos. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Highlighting what the Hebrew prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 60 verse 3, it says this, Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. 
Then verse 11, part B, the second part in 12, then they, these magos, opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned, oh, ready? In a dream, oh, dream interpreters, not to go back to Herod, don't do that, they returned to their country by another route because they now recognize that Herod's trouble. So with the help, ready? This story, with the help of the sciences and dream interpretations, these outsiders were both led to Jesus and they would return home, a place understood to be the ends of the earth kind of place. Fascinating. Now, this is a brilliant and loaded story about an unlikely history, an unlikely people seeking and finding the one who would change everything through the most unlikely of ways. This story has inspired and confounded people for thousands of years because it doesn't fit in a neat box. Instead, invites humility and wrestling. It invites a surrendering to a love that is higher, deeper, and more mysterious than pithy bumper stickers and weeble-wobble nativity scenes. We might say that the way of Herod, let's think about the way of Herod. You could call the way of Herod, it's the way of paranoia. It's the way of violence. It's the way of assuming the worst of others. It's the way of silencing the voices that disagree with you. It's the way of surrounding oneself with only the people who will tell you what you want to hear. It's the way of outright crushing anyone who is deemed a threat to your power and your authority. This is the way of Herod. But journeying with Jesus takes us on a great mysterious adventure which begins with an open mind and a hungry heart a willingness to follow the seemingly upside-down ways of Jesus, which is actually about turning the world right side up. The people who have most inspired and provoked me to growth in my faith are people who have asked questions and pushed me to question and ask questions. They were not people who just said, here are all the answers and the neat thing. Just listen, take it in, and move on without asking questions. The people who most poured into me and helped me grow in my faith said, ask questions, Wally. Or they would push me with such questions when they, when they saw me being Captain Smarty Pants. Oh, I know the answer. Really? What about this? What about this? I'll pull the rug out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you in the knee a little bit, man, because I need you. I need you to dig deeper. And they pushed me in the most beautiful ways. I would say it like this. Through the unexpected, we experience the divine healing our heart and renewing our mind, offering us a life of transformation in a world addicted to domination. which takes us back to the religious leaders, that is the teachers, the priests and teachers of the law, remember them, who are immediate in giving the right answer because they knew the scriptures better than anyone. They had it memorized. They didn't even need to Google it. They knew and gave the right answer when Herod asked the question, but... Does the story have them running off to Bethlehem? 
They know the right answers. They know the scriptures, but they don't go to Bethlehem to sit at the feet of the one born. They stay tucked into the insecure power of Herod. Compare that to the Magos who are struck with awe, wonder, and joy at the seeking and finding of the one known as King Jesus. What an incredible teaching moment. For me, this is why I love the Bible, because it leads me to Jesus. And loving Jesus leads me into the Bible. That's very important. The Bible leads me to Jesus. I don't love the Bible for the Bible itself, because that actually is, like, it's idolatry. I don't, I, as in, I don't love the Bible because it gives me all the right answers. I love the Bible because it leads me to Jesus, and when loving Jesus leads me to dig into the Scriptures. But it's not about having the right answers so I can just spit them out. These people did. Oh, you know the right answer. You ask us any question, we'll name the Scripture right then. But they're not found actually going to the one. They just have memorized all the right answers. They have, they're, instead of like when the, the magos come with treasures and they give them to Jesus, their gifts, these teachers of the law, they have their treasure chest full of snickers that they've been given because they've won all the Bible quizzes. But they're not found with Jesus. What a like, lesson for us today. So friends, are you willing to be open? Are you willing to surrender the need to have all the answers to make room for the divine to meet you through unexpected people in unexpected ways? Will you make room for curiosity and mystery to be partners of divinity? May this story, steeped in wonder, inspire us to be infinitely open to the divine, meeting us, speaking to us, and transforming us in the most unexpected ways. Part two on Christmas Eve. Mystery, awe, wonder. I did not see the story going this way, says the first audience. These people, how did they find Jesus? Ah, oh, that we would be open, that we would be listening, that we would be tuned in. God, what are you up to? How are you moving? I know you're moving. Am I open? I'd love to pray, and then we'll just continue to reflect on this before we feast and party and laugh and hopefully just sit and allow this to percolate in our hearts and our minds and stir us and move us to be open to the one. Gracious God, you are good. Gracious God, you are big, much, much bigger than any way in which we can kind of write you down on paper. God, you're so much bigger than small, bite-sized little statements. And yet we do our best to capture the wonder and the awe and the mystery. Great. But God, we want to be open to what you're doing, open to how you're moving, stirring, who you're stirring in, that we would be awake, we'd be paying attention to that. 
so we can find you in deeper and broader and bigger ways. And we can invite others, all others, to the party. We bless you, God, for moving, for stirring, for being this stunning, beautiful, mysterious, awe-inspiring, wonder-inducing God. In this season, as we anticipate peace and grace and mercy and love and goodness and forgiveness dwelling among us, dwelling in us, drawing us to We bless you, God. We say thank you. We are so grateful for this season. Continue as you do to stir our hearts, transform our hearts, renew our minds, that we would be a people hungry for you, chasing after you, even chasing stars. We pray this in the grace and peace and mercy of Jesus the Christ. Amen.